1: or at least most people listening to this show, think of a Western outlaw on horseback, robbing trains and banks, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. The first part of his career and that of his brother and the younger boys and many others is no longer part of public memory. Only you and I and a few others with an interest in the Civil War know that they were originally Confederate guerrillas operating in the border state of Missouri. That public amnesia about these people didn't come about by accident. According to Dr. Matt Halbert, author of The Ghosts of Guerrilla Memory: How Civil War Bushwhackers Became Gunslingers in the American West, we'll find out how it happened tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, The Leader in Internet Talk Radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or Blackberry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android
3: Market.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to civil war talk radio if you have a question or comment about our program please send an email to prokopovich g at ecu dot edu that's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z g at ecu now back to civil war talk
1: radio and welcome to civil war talk radio i'm jerry prokopovich Coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio Infirmary at 205 Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Same town as East Carolina University, but I'm not representing the university, nor is my guest representing any entity other than himself, as we always do it here. It's the infirmary, formerly the uh, field headquarters, because uh, advancing age continues to catch up with all of us, and it got me last Friday night in the form of a back spasm which left me unable to get out of bed for about a day and just barely walking around for the next few days. I know you want to hear all about this so I'll stop now but uh, if you hear a shriek of uh, astonishing pain at any point during the show just that'll be me. We'll carry on anyway. The uh this is 2017. This is the last show in January 2017. 2017 has been designated by the United Nations as the year of a thousand likes for Civil War Talk Radio's Facebook page. We now are up to 741, up from 730 last week at this pace. It's going to be a, a, a possibility, but we need you to go to the Impediments of War Facebook page and like not just the particular show that your friend is on but the entire page find there it's got to be some way to do that uh, seven hundred and forty-one people have done it so far if you're not savvy about Facebook get a any ten-year-old child nearby to show you how it works and get you to like uh, what we're doing here that will achieve nothing no bonuses will be paid it's just for the good of the soul Well. Looking ahead on Civil War Talk Radio, i had been thinking, I uh, got a good suggestion to invite Dennis Fry of uh, Harper's Ferry, and he's been on my to-do list for some time. But uh, in the news here at the end of January 2017, the administration has just uh, told various federal agencies not to say anything to the public for a while. So in the spirit of that gag order, maybe sometime in the next weeks ahead, I'll just announce that Dennis Fry is on the show, and we'll have sixty minutes of silence. And uh, you can you can imagine what he would have said. You can hear us as you are hearing me now through uh, the miracle of uh, podcasting, downloading it. But you can also listen live uh, at uh, Voice America. You can also. Occasionally hear us on 91.7 FM SBB Radio from Claxton, Tennessee, a place I'm anxious to visit, along with the surrounding communities of East Oak Ridge, South Clinton, and North Powell. A few other announcements before we start. A reminder that in May of this year, the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours gets back underway for the summer season from May 20th to 28th. Go to com, all one word, on the internet. Find out about this hallowed ground. It's an interesting, I think, tour of Civil War sites. I will be accompanying the May 20th version of that trip and look forward to some of you joining me on that. It was a lot of fun last year and the year before. And always, uh, maybe fun's not even the right word because it's it's inspiring and moving and educational, and some parts of it are fun, too. Thanks to everyone who's contributed to the uh, sort of informal David Long uh, Memorial Fund, for which I will be happy to send you a copy of David's book, The Jewel of Liberty, about Abraham Lincoln's re-election in 1864. You can do that from the impedimentsofwar.org webpage. There's a link to that at the Facebook page. And there you you can also find out who's coming up on the show. Next week, February 1st, Hampton Newsom will be the guest, author of Richmond Must Fall, the Richmond Petersburg Campaign, October 1864. Followed on the 8th of February by George Rabel, latest book called Damn Yankees, with an exclamation point. On the 15th, Chuck Roche, whose name I may or may not be saying correctly, S C H will be with us to discuss Imperfect Union, A Father's Search for His Son in the Aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg. And then on the 22nd, a listener's suggestion for Christopher Phillips and his book on war in the middle part of the country, The Rivers Mm -hmm. Ran Backward, the Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border. And just signed up uh, in the last day or two, on the 1st of March, Andrew Bledsoe with a New book that looks really interesting to my way of thinking, Citizen Officers, the Union and Confederate Volunteer Junior Officer Corps in the American Civil War. Be sure to go to impedimentsofwar.org to buy these books. Go there, find the link to Amazon, click on it, and that helps out the website, which is run by Mark Gaffney with mechanical precision. We like to keep it that way. If you donate money to the show, it's not tax deductible. I have to remember to say that. It's tax deductible making out time, so be sure that you don't claim anything you send to me as a deduction, because what I'm doing with it may or may not be charitable, depending how you define that. And one last comment. If you've sent me any email in the last day or so and I haven't gotten to it yet, I may be out of touch for a few days going off to uh, Detroit to visit the Civil War talk radio uh, number one fan, my mother, for a few days, so I'll be falling behind in my correspondence, but uh, I'll catch it all up when I get back next week. Well, our guest tonight is a friend of the show, has been on before. He edited a book on guerrilla warfare in the Civil War, a topic that is gaining a great deal of traction in the field. His newest book is called The Ghosts of Guerrilla Memory, How Civil War Bushwhackers Became Gunslingers in the American West. Our guest, Matt Hulbert, uh, will talk to us, with us about that. Matt, are you there?
4: Uh, thanks very much. I appreciate you having me back a second time. You're a brave man.
1: Well, there's an informal five-year rule on the show which went, <laughs> that, that people don't repeat. Uh, because. And then there's folks that we all know in the field, Jack Davis or Gary Gallagher, who have a new book every other month. Uh, they could be on the whole time if if if... All you need is a new book, but the five-year rule also allows me to politely tell people who I don't want to come back, "No, I can't come back five years." Uh, in your case, I think we're under five years. I'm not sure, actually, but this book was I think irresistible. It's been
4: about a year and a half.
1: That's under five years, so the rules are made for breaking. That's what we're doing here. Uh, what have you been up to in the last year and a half?
4: Uh, Quite a bit, actually. Uh, My wife and I relocated to Corpus Christi, Texas. We're both teaching in the history department at Texas A&M Kingsville. Uh, The book obviously came out, and then uh, about four months ago, a beautiful baby girl arrived. So we have had our hands full of more than just gorillas and history.
1: Mazel That's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you very much. That's, that's excellent news. And that does certainly put everything in a different perspective when you're uh, writing about history. Every time one's own life changes, it seems to me, it, it changes your view as a historian uh, because your, your values inevitably have to shift to accommodate it. Are you, are you yeah. experiencing that?
4: Oh, I'm experiencing that. And I'm also, you know, everyone had warned me that productivity was going to take a temporary downturn, and I said, oh. Those people must not know what they were doing, and they all absolutely (laughs) knew what they were talking about. Um, That is But she is, you know, she's worth every minute of it, so I cannot complain a bit.
1: Absolutely. Well, again, congratulations. That is great. So you've got the new baby. You've got the new book. Uh, The book is, I would say, a, a classic academic monograph in the sense that it has a a strong central thesis to argue, but it's not a tedious, uh, uh, warmed-over dissertation-style book, if, if that makes sense. Let's start at the beginning. Who are uh, who are you writing about when you say uh, the Ghosts of Guerrilla Memory, Civil War Bushwhackers? Are, are we talking about, well, who are these bushwhackers?
4: Well... So the bushwhackers, you alluded to some of them uh, in the preview for the the show. So we're talking about men like Jesse and Frank James. We're talking about Bill Anderson. We're talking about William Quantrill. Um, We're talking about all of the well-known bushwhackers that people, or at least people who have an interest in the borderlands or in guerrilla history, will surely know, and they'll know the better of their exploits at Lawrence and at Centralia. Uh, But we're also talking about the bushwhackers, who people don't know. Uh, It's very hard for us to pinpoint how many guerrillas really took up arms uh, in the border west, but every time we go back and try to calculate, that hypothetical figure seems to go up. Uh, We don't know who the vast majority of them were, because these men are fighting as insurgents, we're not keeping records, you're not asking for a pension, Uh, and in many cases, they wouldn't have wanted people uh, to know some of the things they'd done during the war. So we're sort of talking about two casts of bushwhackers, but then we're also talking in a guerrilla context about the people who did the memory-making. That's sort of its own separate guerrilla movement and how we deal with the bushwhackers after the fact.
1: So that term guerrilla memory is is very evocative in that sense. Uh, Memory has been hot for almost two decades now in Civil War writing. Uh, a lot. Almost, see more books about how the war is remembered than than we do about the war itself. And in this one, you you argue. It seems to me that, that this memory making is actually conducted almost as a guerrilla campaign. Is, is that a reasonable thing to say?
4: It is, and it's it's happening that way from both sides. Uh, it's not just the way guerrillas themselves or their representatives are trying to fashion a positive narrative on their behalf to insert them back into the bigger fold of Civil War commemoration. There's also a guerrilla movement, or at least an irregular movement, in the sense of how we're used to memories being constructed, taking part from the other side. Um, There's a concerted effort to write these men out of the story, uh, to sort of pull that drop of poison out of the well, because it does in some ways tarnish or ruin the bigger picture Uh, So we have different levels of interest at stake here. And, of course, as you alluded to in the introduction to the show, most people have no idea that the Jameses and the Youngers were something more than gunfighters. Uh, In many cases, they were never actually gunfighters at all. That's one of the cleverest ways to just make sure you don't remember them as Civil War guerrillas.
1: So when we talk about the guerrilla war, what we'll do we'll take a break in just a moment let me give you a question to think about over the break you say in the introduction you talk about the historiography of the guerrilla fighting in missouri and you point out that many historians over the years uh later in the book you cite bruce Catton as an example uh to some extent gary gallagher as arguing that the guerrilla war didn't matter much it was just a, a sidelight and then you've got others uh Arguing that it, it's, it's the most important part of all, that it, it's either all or nothing at all. So what is it really? We'll come back and ask that question to our guest tonight, Matt Hulbert, author of The Ghosts of Guerrilla Memory, How Civil War Bushwhackers Became Gunslingers in the American West. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or Blackberry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand.
3: The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk. Gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast.
0: All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to G at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm talking this evening with... Matt Hulbert, author of The Ghosts of Guerrilla Memory, How Civil War Bushwhackers Became Gunslingers in the American West, and left off our first segment with the question about how important were these bushwhackers? Were they a mere sidelight, as Bruce Canton leaves them in his centennial history? Were they uh, really the meaning and heart of the war, as, as Dan Sutherland uh, has recently argued in, in his book, uh, Savage Conflict? Where, where do you see it?
4: Well, it's really the the not so hot take answer is that it's really somewhere in the middle, and it really depends on the scale that we're willing to look at. Uh, Dan Sutherland is absolutely correct. Uh, when his book came out, that was groundbreaking. No one had really gone on record before as saying, "Hold on a minute, these guys are a little more than the long haired scalping sideshow that we've liked to imagine them as." In many ways, academic historians. Uh, had been complicit in this process of scrubbing clean the Civil War memory because it's a thing people grew up with, going to sites, reading Bruce Catton, playing with Civil War toys. It, it's a generational thing. So it they were none too happy in some cases to let that uh, that type of narrative stand. Now, on the other hand, I won't sit here and tell you that guerrillas decided the entire war on their own or that they were the most important factor really in guerrilla history, what we've been working toward. And it's not just me. There are several other fantastic historians who are working on this stuff. We're just kind of trying to catch up to even. Uh, We would like it to become a legitimate line of study and have people realize there was fighting going on on the home front the entire time that we had battles going on at Gettysburg and Chancellorsville, these other places that we're used to, So really what we need to do is start erasing that line that separates Battlefront from Homefront, because in some ways there's no distinction. We have different modes of violence happening, but it's violence nonetheless, and it's ideologically motivated, and it's tied to the war. Uh, So that was probably more than you wanted to know, and not as direct an answer as you would have liked, but that's sort of where we are as a a subgenre of Civil War history at the moment.
1: Well, I think that's uh, longer and, and not definitive is how academics answer questions, so I think that's <laughs> excellent. Uh, but th- th- this process by which uh, the state of Missouri rent by guerrilla violence for four years s- doesn't enter the public consciousness, or enter, or the, the bushwhackers enter the public consciousness, if at all, in a very different form. You argue it starts right after the war when... Uh, People are trying to write a history that recasts the bushwhackers as something more uh, acceptable. Uh, Edwards, uh, John Edwards, is the uh, uh, the author you talk about in that regard. Could tell us about his work.
4: So John Newman Edwards. Uh, it's ironic that he becomes the, what I call the architect of guerrilla memory or the spokesman of guerrillas in the western borderlands because he's actually a regular cavalry officer. He rides with Joe Shelby in the Iron Brigade. Uh, He attains the rank of major. He's Shelby's adjutant for a while. Uh, But after the war, for his own political purposes, he sees an opportunity here to equip Missouri with its own brand of the lost cause, but because Missouri doesn't have Gettysburgs and Vicksburgs and Antietams. It doesn't have these large battles to fall back on. The status quo of violence in Missouri for most people had been irregular. It had been a guerrilla conflict. It had happened on the home front and domestic settings. So rather than try to immediately just fabricate this regular wartime experience and pull Missouri into the regular fold of the lost cause, Edward says, I'm going to work with the tools that I've been given, the cards that I've been dealt. And he essentially sets up a parallel system rather than looking to Lee or Davis or Longstreet or Stewart or any of these other deified figures. He looks to Quantrill and Anderson and the Jameses, and rather than trying to hide the novelty of their Western experience, he plays it up. He basically turns the question back on Southerners and regular Confederates and says, who could be more hardcore of a Confederate than a guy who was willing to essentially go live in the woods and fight a war with no quarter? Uh, Who could have been more dedicated to the Confederate cause than a man like Jesse James or or William Quantrill? These guys put it all on the line, and they didn't get to surrender. They didn't necessarily get to lay down arms and go home when all of this ended, uh, and for a few years anyway, that narrative is pretty successful.
1: Now, Missouri has never actually secedes. It's not part of the Confederacy originally, so it's like they're trying to join a club and they have to prove they're, they're worthy of membership. Uh, why does, who in Missouri wants to be an ex-Confederate, uh, wants the state to be seen this way?
4: Well, so this is a good question, and in this case, Missouri has quite a bit in common with Kentucky. Uh, Mm -hmm. Missouri has a a contingent of slave owners who live in a region called Little Dixie, which is essentially right along the Missouri River, Uh, and those men are elite, they have a lot of money, and they wield a lot of political power. They try very hard to get the state out of the Union, and they come very close to doing so. Uh, the majority of able-bodied men who serve in the regular war go, I believe it's two-thirds for the Union. Uh, So there's an overwhelming majority of regular soldiers that go for the Union. But there's a massive populace in the state of Missouri that has Southern sympathies, and while they might not have been willing to leave home to go serve in the Confederate Army, they're willing to stay in state and their local territories or their local orbits and fight for what they saw as their Confederate cause in Missouri. A lot of these families that are slave-owning, the James' own slaves, the Younger's own slaves, um, they've all gravitated from the Carolinas and from Virginia through Kentucky and then into Missouri. So these are families that have deep southern roots. Uh, They're not sort of just off the boat and saying, well, let's pick a side. Uh, They've got a lot of what they see as cultural ties, to the confederacy and frankly they don't want to lose their slaves uh they're a minority in the state but a powerful minority nonetheless one willing to fight a war of this style to save what they, they see as their inheritance and their lifestyle
1: one uh, a book that i found fascinating when it came out uh, maybe five years ago is mark geiger's book on financial fraud in missouri in which he argues that uh, the way the, the Confederacy was financed in that state, it led to the Union taking over the banks and then foreclosing and actually seizing the property of many of these uh, uh, wealthy or middle-class slave owners. And as a result, their sons, now having nothing to look forward to, were more likely to become rebels. And you mentioned James' family had slaves and so on. Uh, do you, Is there anything in uh, the Geiger's thesis, do you think?
4: There is something to that, and there's actually a historian. He doesn't get read quite as much. He published a couple articles in the 70s uh, by the name of Bowen, who basically came up with what's called the relative deprivation hypothesis. Uh, and the idea behind this is that you have a small, elite slaveholding group in Missouri, and they have multiple sons. So that first oldest son is going to inherit the lion's share of his father's property and slaves, and then those second, third, and fourth sons are going to kind of get the scraps that are left over. Now, when the Union starts trying to repossess this property, or when it looks like slavery might be taken away, or at least when we're afraid of slavery being taken away, uh, Bowen argues rather convincingly, this is part of what sends men off to the bush. They're not willing to give up what they see as their rightful inheritance, And this is one of the more interesting things that a lot of people don't connect the dots on. For gorillas, we think of bushwhackers as these long-haired, gritty, bearded guys. They're dirty. They live in the woods. Surely they must be these sort of backwoodsmen. In reality, the vast majority of them came from moderately affluent, if not wealthy families. Uh, So part of the reason we think they're willing to put so much on the line and fight so ferociously is because they have so much to lose. Uh, Now, one issue with Geiger's book, and it's a fantastic book, it's well worth reading for anyone who's interested in the guerrilla war, we haven't quite seen yet what happens when you get to the end of the progression that Mark is talking about. His story sort of concludes when banks have taken over houses or they've foreclosed on them But there's another chapter of that story, or at least an epilogue, that I think, and I haven't gotten to do a lot of the research on this, so this is a little hypothesizing on my part. I believe what you're going to find is that a lot of that property managed to stay in the family. Because what's the bank going to do with it? When it's foreclosed on, they're going to auction it to locals in the community. In most cases, those people are going to be part of the property losers' kinship network, they're gonna keep the price very low and then either either just give or sell that property back to its owner. So it's a very long-winded way of saying we're not actually sure how much property changed hands, but it's the hmm. threat of losing it that is probably the big contributing factor that sends a lot of these young men out into the woods.
1: Now you point out how the the viciousness with which they fight, the fighting with no quarter is what uh, uh, what John Newman Edwards uses to establish uh, the Bushwhackers as the, the most Confederate of Confederates. But the lost cause myth as it grows up in the 18, late 60s into the 1870s uh, becomes mixed into the, the New South argument that the South is, is, has put slavery behind it, is now uh, a more advanced place and long-haired guys who who kill people from behind don't have a place in that kind of story. Robert E. Lee sure has a place in the New South story as a representative of all that's good about the Old South. Uh, the bushwhackers don't. How, did, how does public memory adapt to that?
4: Well, that's exactly right, and that's a great point. Um, the Edwards narrative has a shelf life. It's only viable so long as the broader environment of memory is sort of in that space while we're still sort of jostling and shuffling to see where people are going to fall on this commemorative totem pole. And when it becomes clear that being a novelty isn't a good thing anymore, that you're going to be forgotten in that sense if you don't conform to what the lost cause eventually becomes when it turns into this memorial juggernaut, you're going to be left behind. Gorillas rather quickly change their tune They actually start saying, well, you know, we were a lot like regular soldiers. We were actually Confederate all along. We have much more in common with Confederate soldiers and the causes they fought for and how they treat women and their ideas of honor. And they really start this effort, a concerted effort, uh, through reunions that they hold and memoirs that they pen and other events that they hold in public, in some ways trying to undo the work of Edwards' earliest narrative. They don't want to be different anymore. Now being forgotten is their great fear, and they're willing to conform if it means preserving their memory in the longer term.
1: The, the idea of reunions for these guys uh, struck me as just fascinating. We, I mean, everybody listening to the show has seen 50th uh Year reunion at Gettysburg, the old men shaking hands across the stone wall. We've all seen films of that. Uh, familiar, familiar with the encampments of the, uh, the the Grand Army of the Republic or the, the Confederate veterans in the East. But the idea of bushwhackers having a reunion—it's it, it's almost like a sitcom kind of premise. Uh, there, how did those things work?
4: So, in a lot of ways, these are actually like GAR. Uh, or UCV encampments in miniature. Um, the reunions that I talk about most in the book were of Quantrill's former command, which at its peak had somewhere between three and 400 men in it. Not all of them survived the war, and others move away and never have anything to do with Missouri or their former guerrilla comrades again. But there's a core unit of about 50 or 60 men who over the years, over the course of about 30 years, will come to these reunions on a pretty regular basis. They hold them annually. There are a few different sites uh, in western Missouri, usually in the Independence, Kansas City area where they like to have these. Uh, and it is. It's really it's sort of like something out of the Twilight Zone to imagine all of these guys who were at one point considered outlaws, they were insurgents, they were criminals of war. 20 years later, they're middle-aged men and they're all getting together drinking lemonade talking about the Lawrence Massacre or the Centralia Massacre. Uh, it's really sort of bizarre. And one of the reasons that they're able to pull this off and the reunions last as long as they do is because the average bushwhacker is significantly younger by four or five or maybe even six years than a regular soldier. So these men are younger, they're mobile longer, they're capable of traveling longer, and they're lucid longer. So thankfully, some newspaper editors thought to go track these guys down and get some stories. Uh, and there's just, there is literary gold that flows out of the mouths of these men because they remember what they did and they're willing to talk about it. Uh, at the local level, they're not trying to hide who they are or what they did. Uh, and there are some very rowdy incidents. I mean, these guys were bushwhackers for a reason. There are there's a duel fought at uh, at a guerrilla reunion. Luckily, the two men are both so old they miss, and no one <laughs> is killed. Uh, it was actually one. They live in a Confederate veterans home at Higginsville, and one of the men is convinced that the other has stolen his pet raccoon and takes a pot nice. shot at him. Uh, so they're. There were all manner of shenanigans. You can only imagine uh, what's going on behind the scenes at these meetings.
1: But I'm still picturing we're having a reunion in uh, Missouri of of bushwhackers and across the border in Kansas. You've got Lawrence and people living there, some of whom were there at the time of Quantrill's raid, some of them uh, descendants of those people. Certainly they have the local memory of Quantrill's men coming in and indiscriminately killing civilians and now it it's like it's like the Charles Manson family is having a reunion next door uh, these these yeah, guys are killing a lot of
4: bad blood and it doesn't necessarily so one of the things that distinguishes the story of guerrilla memory from the broader regular war or at least the way it's been written about to this point is Guerrilla war happens in your house. It happens up close. It's personal. A lot of the time, you know the person who's killing you or killing your family. Those wounds don't heal with time. Those grudges, for many cases, are held for the duration of the war generation's lives. So the people in Lawrence, you're right. They're basically watching these events happen across the border, and they're livid. Uh, They can't stand it at one point. There's even a rumor that the guerrillas have requested permission to hold one of their reunions in Lawrence. And you can just imagine what the people in Kansas, and especially (laughs) of Lawrence, think of that. A letter is written to the guy who runs the Quantrill Society, who organizes these reunions, and it basically says, if you guys come back to Lawrence, why don't you come armed? I was one of Jennison's men, which was a a rival unionist guerrilla unit during the war, I was one of his men. We'll meet you on the field, and we'll show our grandkids what the guerrilla war used to look like. Wow, that's so they an amazing are ready story. to duke this out 30 and 40 yeah. and even 50 years later.
1: We're going to take another short break now. Come back, find out more about Bushwhackers and Civil War memory with our guest, Christopher Hulbert. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Matt Hulbert, author of The Ghosts of Guerrilla Memory, How Civil War Bushwhackers Became Gunslingers in the American West. We saw in the first Uh, segment, first two segments, how post-war the Bushwhackers initially wrote memoirs bragging of their savagery to prove they were good Confederates, and then as the lost cause takes shape as a memorial uh, construct, they begin to moderate their language and claim they were almost like regular soldiers. But that doesn't get us to how they become gunslingers in the West. Matt, you have a chapter in which you describe this process uh, called Gorilla's Gone Wild in the West. Did you write the whole book just to set up that chapter title?
4: I, I'm i going to plead the fifth on that one, Jerry. <laughs> I don't know if my editors would appreciate me telling the truth.
1: Well, we'll, we'll leave it at that then. But it, it is the chapter in which you, you show this crossover point, how it is that people like Jesse James go in the public mind from uh, Civil War bushwhackers to Western people, uh, Talk about that process.
4: So this is sort of the second. The book sort of has two arcs. The first one looking at the way gorillas have been remembered and the way they perceive themselves. And then the bigger arc that they fit within is sort of how the how outside forces uh, evolve and change the way that we remember them in the big picture. And westernization is sort of the, the final stage of that process. And essentially what you've got is by the time the lost cause and what I call mainstream Civil War memory is codifying its coming together and becoming a, a coherent movement, the people who are at the head of that, which we could also call sort of the battles and leaders set, the people running uh, the Jubal of the world, uh, they don't want men like Quantrill or James or the Youngers or Anderson They don't want the indiscriminate killing of the Lawrence Massacre. They don't want scalping. They don't want women and children in the crosshairs, which is a signature part of War on the home front. But it's not going to be an easy thing to just pronounce sort of a damnatio memoriae on gorillas and snap your fingers and have them be gone. You're going to have to come up with something more clever than that. So rather than just trying to erase them, We're going to repurpose them, and we're going to export them culturally. So starting in the 1870s and 1880s, you're going to see a wave of what I call outlaw histories, which are basically designed to minimize the role of guerrillas in the war, of the most prominent guerrillas like the Jameses and the Youngers, and to start playing up their post-war banditry. And even though the vast majority of that banditry is actually happening in Missouri and Kentucky, and in some cases even east of that in Tennessee and Alabama. And those books, those robberies are going to creep further and further west. And by the time you get into the 1880s, there are going to be stories floating around about Jesse James as a 10-year-old rustling cattle with Mexican bandits south of the Rio Grande. Uh, so this is just going to sort of take on this crazy life of its own. Those books are eventually around the turn of the century going to turn into dime novels and you're going to start to indoctrinate the next generation and those are going to get even more western. James is going to be a gunfighter in Wyoming and Colorado and Texas and California, all of these places where he probably never set foot. He was in Texas briefly maybe during the war, but west of that after the war is just an outright fabrication. And then eventually the dime novels are going to give way to film. And that's when we're really going to get the nail in this coffin of westernization. Jesse James is going to become the ultimate cowboy gunslinger. It's really kind of him and Billy the Kid on screen. Uh, They duke it out for the crown. And then once that deal is sealed, James has essentially become a representative of other guerrillas. So we just assume, well, they all must have been western gunslingers like that. And then you say, wait a minute, were there... Were there Western guerrillas in the war? And that end of sort of scrubbing them clean has been accomplished.
1: So you, you take this up through the, the era of movies, and you, you have a chapter where you talk about movies. Uh, you point out Gary Gallagher, who's written uh, very persuasively about how you can categorize Civil War films. His take on films that involve People like Jesse James, uh, Ride with the Devil, or Outlaw Josie Wales—that uh, these are, are just westerns with a little Civil War flavoring. They're not; they're really not Civil War movies at all. Uh, but you—you you argue quite the opposite.
4: Well, it's not that they're not Civil War movies in the way we're used to. He's right about that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's that they're showing a different Civil War experience on screen. Uh, we've sort of—or we, as in historians—collectively until recently had gone out of our way to make sure these men weren't part of the bigger story we were telling about the war. Uh, In some ways, we were letting the memory and commemoration drive the scholarship, when of course, it really hopefully should be the other way around. So basically, what I'm arguing in the book is that yes, these pictures look Western, because the war in Missouri looked Western. It looked different. These men were wearing braces of revolvers and Bowie knives. They had long hair and beards. They wore slouch hats. They didn't necessarily wear blue and gray uniforms. They did thunder down on individual men in their fields and ambush them. This is just what the war looked like. So it's not that these films don't show the war. It's just that they don't show the war that we're used to. Uh, and I think the sooner we're willing to recognize that, The more complete a picture, in terms of memory and the war in pop culture, we're going to be able to start drawing for the public. And that's always a good thing. Whenever we can widen the umbrella and get more people under it, that can't be bad for history.
1: Uh, Is there a a movie that you think accurately captures the, the bushwhacker experience?
4: Ride with the Devil is probably by far the closest um, in terms of seeing the way that bushwhackers fight, their heavy reliance on revolvers and mobility on horseback. The mantra of a gorilla is always live to fight another day. So if you're a smart guerrilla, you're never really taking on a fight you don't know you can win. And if you're even on the fence about that, you're never taking on a fight you can't escape from. You're never trying to line up and fight the way regular soldiers do. That's why you're sticking to the bush, you're fighting at night, you're wearing disguises, you're involving women in your plots to lure in victims. You're doing all of these, you write things that fall out of what uh, Lieber might appreciate. Uh, this is part of why he just considers you a criminal of war or a brigand. So Ride With The Devil gets a lot of that, and you see sort of the indiscriminate killing during the Lawrence Massacre. But you also see that guerrillas are human. They're not Terminators running around. They're not all the same. Some of them would have been more sympathetic. Some of them might have been absolutely horrified by a guy like Arch Clemens taking scalps or fingers as trophies. We hate to generalize, uh, and that's sort of what's happened to guerrillas over the years. They've become more and more sensational because that's what's gotten people interested in them uh, but in terms of why men fought and how they fought, Ride with the Devil is probably the best. Uh, Cold Mountain has some good scenes that show how the Home Guard, we always think of bushwhackers as Confederate, uh, mm-hmm. but Home Guard units are also involved in irregular warfare, and they are a fair share of Unionist guerrillas. Uh, that's happening quite a bit. I hope a lot of people went and saw Free State of Jones, based on Vicky Bynum's great book, uh, that has a lot to do with unionist guerrilla violence, which is not something that we tend to talk about as much as we should.
1: That, that's a good example. She was on the show uh, a month or so ago, and uh, I was asking her about scenes in the movie that, that reflected things she had actually uh, researched and others that the director invented. And the the scene of the, the ambush in the churchyard, for example, she said, yeah, that happened, uh, that uh, this was how the Unionists fought back. You meant, When you said battles and leaders a moment ago, that triggered a, something I really wanted to ask you, which was uh, about Mark Twain's story. You use that as a theme throughout uh, his story of the, was the private history of a campaign that failed. Uh, I would guess most listeners have read that at some point. If you haven't, put this on pause, go read it and come back. Uh, it's a brilliant story in many ways. Curiously flawed in others, but you use it all the way through your book. What, what do you draw from it?
4: Well, so the thing to me that's so interesting about Twain and why he sort of becomes the epigraphical spine of the book, uh, pretty much every chapter starts with something thematic pulled from the private history of the campaign that failed. It's that Twain not only shows that we didn't really, in the immediate aftermath of the war, We didn't really know how to consider this type of warfare up against the regular war and how it's being glorified and how those characters are being deified. He completely understands that it's different, and he actually understands that that's not necessarily a bad thing. To me, the most interesting story behind the story is that at the same time Twain is coming to that realization, he is even being written out. Of battles and leaders. He was originally supposed to be part of the big, fancy leather, gilded volume that you could send away for. This would probably be the nicest book on anybody's shelf at the time it comes out. They read Twain's entry, and they think, nope, we don't want to deal with him. That doesn't look like the rest of the entries. That's a different war. It doesn't belong. So on one hand, you've got Twain reflecting this different Western war. His men have pistols and bowie knives, They lasso people. They kill people in the dark in rainstorms. They can't figure out which way to retreat or how to do it fast enough. They're not regular Victorian chivalric soldiers. And on the other hand, even though he's being pretty honest about that, he's even deemed too dangerous. He's a threat to the broader commemorative landscape. So he even has to be exported west. So you really have sort of this story within a story which is kind of the crux of guerrilla memory. That's really what it is. Uh, it is a story behind the story of how and what we remember and why certain types of violence are acceptable and why others aren't.
1: Now, one way we remember Civil War past is by going to see the places where it happened. And obviously with guerrilla warfare, where it's in every individual farm and homestead, there's no single big battlefield to look at. Uh, You talk a little bit in your last chapter about going to see some of these sites, uh, or to see what sites there are. What what did you find?
4: Not much, unfortunately. Uh, You know, there are some placards in places like Lawrence. You can visit the field in Centralia that we think the massacre happened in. There's a small placard there commemorating the dead. Really, by far, the best standing site is you can go visit the James Farm in Kearney. Uh, This is the house where Jesse and his stepfather were both tortured. Uh, This is the house where the Pinkertons threw the bomb in the window and blew off part of his mother's arm, killed uh, his stepbrother. But even then, uh, you're sort of hard-pressed to find physical evidence of the guerrilla war because, like you said... This is being fought in people's front parlors on their porches, in their barns, over corn cribs. These aren't things that necessarily anyone thought to preserve because you kept living in your house for 10, 20, 30, 40 years after the war. You didn't think, hey, we should move out and preserve this because the guerrilla war happened. It's not like the courthouse at Appomattox or other battlefields where people immediately thought we need to stop what we're doing and preserve this so we can remember what happened here. And part of the problem, of course, is what people will hopefully see from the book. Most people didn't want to remember, at least outsiders, they didn't want to remember what had happened there, so they certainly weren't going to go the extra mile to make sure that these places got preserved. There's virtually nowhere in the state of Missouri where you can put together a coherent, or take a coherent public history tour. You've got to kind of go on your own, Uh, You've got to find out where people are buried, and you're going to have to do some trespassing, unfortunately, if you really want to see where some of this stuff took place. Uh, And unfortunately, with recent developments that I hope are not true concerning organizations like the NEH, uh, which in some cases are the only hope for public history projects that help preserve these physical sites of memory, I'm not sure that that will ever happen. In Missouri, which really is a shame, uh, because it's such an important part of the war, and it's one that people don't know, but they're always interested in when they find out. So it would be really nice if eventually, you know, we could have something to show them.
1: It, it certainly would be. Let me make a quick disclaimer. Civil War Talk Radio does not endorse trespassing uh, as you
4: go touring <laughs> Neither Civil War, do war I. sites. I will, I will make that disclaimer as well. <laughs>
1: Well, there's so much in here. We have only a minute and a half left. The role of the United Daughters of the Confederacy is a major part of the book. Uh, 30 seconds on, on – no, that's not fair to, to that. I'm going to tell l- listeners they need to buy the book, The Ghosts of Guerrilla Memory, How Civil War Bushwhackers Became Gunslingers in the American West. And there you can find out the role that women played as uh, not being on the home front. There is no home front. The, the home front is the war front in Missouri and uh, women play a very different role there than they do elsewhere in the war and then they preserve it through the United Daughters of the Confederacy but for that story uh, you'll have to go and get a copy of this book it is really uh, thought-provoking and entertaining uh, throughout and uh, a pleasure to read now the 15 second question uh, what's your next project
4: So there are two projects very quickly. One is a biography of John Newman Edwards. It's hard to believe that he doesn't have one with all of the incredible things he did in his life. He's the guerrilla architect. He's in Mexico with Maximilian. He's writing several books after the war. He fights a duel. He's an alcoholic. Uh, So that's there. Uh, A four-month-old baby might put that on the back burner. There's also an edited volume on the Lawrence Massacre that I'm hoping to put together that might give us a better idea or put the raid in better context.
1: Well, those both sound interesting. Listeners, you will enjoy this book by Matt Halbert, *Ghost of Guerrilla Memory. Matt, thanks so much for being on the show.
4: Thank you very much for having me again. I promise this time we'll try to stick to the five-year rule.
1: <laughs> very good. And listeners, thank you as always for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.